Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, the Yankees lost. The Mets lost months ago. We ask a local sports writer, what's a New York City baseball fan to do now? Coming from someone who grew up a Mets fan, I don't really understand the Yankee fan psyche. I would always <laughs> be moved, personally, I would always be moved to root for the underdog. And so right. in that case, I would say, and I would suggest rooting for the Milwaukee Brewers. Plus, what is black art? An ongoing exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum explores this question and the artwork that was spawned during two tumultuous decades in black history. It's not just depicting political leaders, but it's also right. thinking about the ways in which violence is encoded in you know, materials that you can find at a hardware store. Hi, welcome to the show. Just ahead, we'll be joined by the Brooklyn Museum curator who coordinated the stunning new exhibit, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. But first, with the Yankees now out of the playoffs, the football giants looking like peewees, and the Jets having trouble taking off, and New York area basketball teams expected to rank in the bottom five of the league, what's a New York City sports fan to do in the what should be the sports capital of the country? To tell us, we're joined on the phone by local sports scribe for USA Today, Ted Berg. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Now, Ted, are you a Yankees fan? Uh, so I grew up a Mets fan. Oh, so you weren't sad to see them lose? <laughs> uh, you know, well, so, so because I, I travel for the postseason, um, I'm now sort of biased by... Uh, where I'm going to spend my October, so I was a little bit sad because it means uh, that that Friday I'll I'll go away and I'll be I'll be gone for the rest of the month. Oh man, can I ask you what happened to the baby bombers? They didn't hit that many bombs. You know the the offense went quiet at exactly the wrong time. Uh, I think the Red Sox were very focused on preventing home runs and and did a good job of it. Uh, and the main thing is, you know, I mean, baseball is a sport where the worst team can beat the best team on any given night. And so when you have two very good teams facing off, just about anything can happen. And, you know, we put a lot into these postseason series, but ultimately they sort of boil down to like a series of coin tosses. And the Yanks kept coming up tails, I guess. Yeah, this time. So if you love baseball and you're a New Yorker, what do you do? The Brooklyn-come-L.A. Dodgers are still in the mix. Should we, I mean, are we Dodgers people? Are, again, are we Dodgers people? My grandfather would roll over in his grave <laughs> if I said it was okay <laughs> for a New Yorker to root for the team that, that Walter O'Malley whisked, whisked away from him. But if you're a Yankee fan, maybe. you know. And, and coming from someone who grew up a Mets fan, I don't really understand the Yankee fan psyche. I would always <laughs> be moved... Personally, I would always be moved to root for the underdog. And so right. in that case, I would say and I would suggest rooting for the Milwaukee Brewers, which are you know, clearly the underdogs among the remaining team. Uh, they're a team that's never won a world championship. They haven't been to the World Series since 1982. I think probably one of the longest and most thoroughly suffering fan bases, <laughs> certainly in baseball, maybe in all sports. So, Oh, uh, not why the Browns exist. Uh, well, yeah, obviously, um, that's that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and so, so you know, as as someone who grew up a Mets fan, I think I'm I have uh, I have empathy for the Brewers fans. Right. Uh, but if you're a Yankee <laughs> fan, I mean, I, you probably like star power. In which case, maybe there is some appeal to the Dodgers, the the big spending team, and and I think also uh, the Astros. You know, I think if you're if you're rooting for someone to beat the Red Sox immediately, uh, the Astros are the team to do it. Certainly, because they're matched up. They also have probably you know, and, and baseball doesn't do a good job of of sort of fostering national celebrity. But right. uh, in that it does, the Astros have in, in Justin Verlander and, and Jose Altuve and, and to a lesser extent guys like Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman, they have the marquee names, at least inside the sport. Right. So if, if you root for stars, then, then the Astros are the team. So as somebody, you know, I'm from the Midwest, but I'm based here now. I would like to find maybe some sports team to root for. Like who who in like in New York right now, who should I be rooting for? Oh, it's so tough. I mean you're talking to someone who who grew up a fan of the Mets, Jets, Knicks and Islanders. Oh and man. I don't think you could I don't think you could have a rough draw. I was not a rougher draw. I was Dead. <laughs> uh, I was just uh, just slightly too young to be aware uh, well I was aware of but I didn't I didn't recognize the importance of the 1986 Mets uh, I knew my family was into it but I didn't know that the Mets wouldn't win the World Series every year at that point right um, and so I kind of missed that and so really 1987 was when I became a sports fan and it's been all misery since then <laughs> um, so I think my best recommendation for you would be to just root for some team from some other city yeah. honestly you know and if you can if you can bring yourself to root for the Yankees that's a, that's a good bet uh the Giants have obviously had a lot of success if if not this year um but the Knicks are a, a miserable organization yeah. to root for uh, the Nets look pretty bad for the foreseeable future, yeah. uh, and you know I, I'm I'm so out of the loop with hockey I can't even speak to the to the Rangers, Devils, and Islanders. But you know I don't know that there's going to be a lot of of bright lights coming <laughs> those ways. I mean the, the good thing about 2018 is all of these games are are streamed online, and I think if you're a baseball fan, it's probably actually way less expensive to root for an out of market team. Uh, if you want to watch it every single night, so right. I don't know. I might take up the uh, the Atlanta Braves are kind of fun and young right now, and they come through. They come to New York all the time, so you can catch them. As a, again, someone who grew up a Mets fan, that's a tough thing for me to say. <laughs> but, uh, that you know, if you want to, if you want to sort of have a bet on a few, that's a good one to to bet on for sure. I'm gonna consider the Braves, but I got to tell you, my heart might officially be with the Brewers. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was the summer of 1963, and a quarter of a million civil rights demonstrators marched on Washington, D.C. to demand freedom now. For many, the resounding speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. marked a high point in the movement, a hopeful moment when public opinion was perhaps shifting. But for those toiling with the day-to-day -day indignities of discrimination, change was not happening soon enough and the march marked the first stage of a new, more radical phase. In this regard, 1963 could be considered the start date of the Black Power era, and it is the starting point for an exhibit that recently opened at the Brooklyn Museum, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. To tell us more about the show, we're joined by the museum's assistant curator of contemporary art, Ashley James. Welcome to 112BK, Thank Ashley. you for having me. 
So let's just jump in. The title of the show is Soul of a Nation, which alludes to so many things in black literature, black art, black mm-hmm. music. Yes. Um, so what is it saying about black art during such a tumultuous period in American life right now? The two key words that constantly kind of reverberate for me when I'm thinking about the show Mm -hmm. and in um, helping curate the show is urgency and innovation. Mm. You have this period of extreme change, not only black power, but of course, it's also the second wave feminist movement. It's um, the Vietnam War. There are so many transitions happening in the social and political sphere and also the aesthetic sphere. Right. And the work that comes out of it is just extraordinary because it's responding to all of these pressures of the moment. And I like that you said it's responding to the pressures of the moment because, you know, Soul of a Nation is in many ways about Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of those same values and it hits a lot of those same notes. But what does it mean for America that black art that was being made between Mm -hmm. 1963 and 1983 is hyper relevant in 2018? Yeah, and of course that is the kind of unfortunate tension of the show is Mm -hmm. kind of the way in which it seems to resound so strongly in the present. I'm an academic, and being an academic means seeing long histories. So Mm -hmm. it's not a surprise to me that we see those parallels because, of course, we're the inheritors of that history for good and for bad. Mm -hmm. I'm an inheritor of the moment in the sense that I have a curatorial job, and that was a success of it. But also we're feeling the long legacy of oppression specifically for Black Americans which is as long as the country is. And, you know, speaking of the country, this exhibition is arranged by both region and era. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why make that choice? I I find it to be a really interesting point because I find so often when people talk about black issues, you know, I live in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. I'm from Indiana. And I am constantly like, well, black in Brooklyn is not like Mm -hmm. black in Indiana. There's Mm -hmm. something different happening there. Yeah. Of course, the show originated at the Tate Modern. Right. And... um, Um, traveled to Crystal Bridges before coming here. Mm -hmm. And when I was rearranging the show, I felt that in bringing it to Brooklyn and bringing it to New York, uh, there was an opportunity to delve a little bit more into this regional aspect, which was a thread of the show anyway, and I kind of just drew it out. Now, the Um, Tate is in London. Is in London, yes. Right. Just want (laughs) to put that out there before people be like, wow. Right. So it originated outside of the the nation of the title, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, though, of course, it's interested in internationalism, et cetera. That being said, um, the regional focus for me was really keeping in mind the fact that long legacies of just placemaking, being in specific uh, locations in the country kind of provide the context for the kinds of art that is produced in it. So that regional focus kind of allows you to see how how these histories inform work during this moment. Mm-hmm. Now, Holland Carter, the art critic of the New York Times, talked about the politics of material. And he referenced Melvin Edwards' delicate yet dangerous curtain mm-hmm. um, for William and Peter, made from barbed wire and chains. Mm-hmm. Which was, 
Then there's Edward's series of lynch fragments, each with a hammer, a link of chains, and a knife blade. Can you talk to me a little bit about these pieces? Because I just find that, you know, when he talks about the politics of material, I find the use of the materials of bondage in black mm -hmm. art to be so, like you said, you know, innovative. It's, mm -hmm. it's innovation. Mel Edwards is a master mm -hmm. and really is a artist who is able to use very kind of simple materials as you're pointing to mm -hmm. and make them resound across multiple histories just through combination and right. through kind of ingenuity. Mm -hmm. And I think this question about the politics of material is really pointing to what is a larger tension of the show, which is that between abstraction and figuration and mm. this sense that what most of us kind of conjure up in our minds when we think about political art is really figuration. We think right. about the depiction of activists. We think about the black power fists, all of yes. these kinds of iconographies. And, and those things exist in the exhibit. They exist in the exhibit right. alongside works like Edward's Curtain, which is thinking about histories of racialized violence mm -hmm. through materials that do not depict anything representationally. Comprehensively, you get a real sense of the many different strategies, many ways that artists are engaging with histories. It's not just depicting political leaders, but it's also right. thinking about the ways in which violence is encoded in materials that you can find at a hardware store. What's interesting to me with this exhibit and also with the idea of black art is sort of how do you make art black? Is it just who the artist is? It, does there have to be a certain amount of messaging attached to it? Or is black art black art because I say it's black art? So that is a question that has served hundreds of dissertations and right. books across decades. <laughs> right. And in some ways is a kind of foundational question to the study of African-American art and really, mm -hmm. I think, the humanities in general, um, right. this question of what makes black art black. Mm -hmm. In one sense, yes, I think that anything that a black artist makes can be considered black art. Right. Um, but then there were also artists who were actually interested in engaging and making what one can call a black aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And to them, it looked a specific way. I think that there are artists like Afrocobra, which are shown in the exhibition, that really had a list of tenants that made up their black aesthetic. Um, right. It looked colorful. It was in contradiction to a state European tradition. It mm -hmm. incorporated text, all of these things. But then there are other artists in the show and there are other black artists in general who don't see that their work prescribes to a specific kind of aesthetic. It's just, right. it just is. I guess it's one of those questions that like the answering of the question is probably more fascinating than a definitive answer. So one of the things that I've been seeing recently in the news, mm -hmm. um, also some conversations that I've actually just seen on social media and online, specifically about black curators in the art world and in the museum world and what it means to have the opportunity to be a curator mm -hmm. as a black or brown person. Mm -hmm. How does it feel to get to do an exhibit like this or to get this exhibit and to be the curator for like how does that feel oh i mean it's a great honor yeah you know you study so many artists across your your studies and personally and then to be able to actually 
work with the objects and the oh, artists yeah. themselves in some cases is just a real honor. And I think it's also for me, it, it means recognizing all of the scholarship that has come before mm-hmm. and the people from whom I've learned this right. history. Scholars like Kelly Jones, who I always mentioned in relationship to this show, who was mm-hmm. my professor, but also was so foundational to the study of this period in particular. Right. My engagement with it means, I don't know, it's a it's a kind of real gratitude for right. the people who paid the path for me. It's sort of just the acknowledgement of the legacy. I always think about when someone is like the first black, because we're still having black mm-hmm. first, and when that happens to someone and how it's never because they were the first person who could do it. Right. Oh, of course not. It's just of they were the one who got the opportunity. Uh-huh. So I, I really, mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. But I guess with art, and especially with art that is this steeped in history, of course you bring that with you. Like, of course that happens. Are there any pieces that specifically for you are just like, if somebody's coming through, I'm like, you don't leave without seeing this piece? Yeah, I mean, I I think the whole show of course. Is, <laughs> feels like that. I think Sam Gilliam's Carousel Change, for mm-hmm. those who've seen the show, who will see the show, has a kind of special place in the exhibition and mm-hmm. really foregrounds many of the concerns formally of artists during this period. Mm-hmm. It is a large suspended canvas that is draped in this kind of vestibule in the exhibition. Mm-hmm. And really foregrounds questions of the frame, performance, gesture, the ways in which artists were, and specifically painters, were thinking about pushing painting forward um, via its engagement with time and space. Now, there's discussion of the sacrifices made by some of the artists represented here, Mm -hmm. that they were in the mainstream, their work was not political, and then they made the choice to become political, which I think we're seeing with more artists and athletes and all sorts of people Mm -hmm. um, with influence in this time. But what was the fallout like for these artists? Like, we can see now how people are being treated when they decide to speak up and speak out or speak the truth. But back then, you know, to give up the privilege of being mainstream, what does that do for your career? I'm not sure if it was so much that artists were giving up the privilege to be mainstream because during the period, it was about finding one's mainstream to begin Mm. with. So there was a lot of agitation, both for representation within mainstream institutions, but also collective sense of just needing to make one's own space. So artists went and founded their own institutions. Um, The Studio Museum was founded in 1968. The Brooklyn Museum's Community Gallery was founded in 1968 Mm -hmm. in response to agitation for representation. To me, it sounds like there was less of a sacrifice and more of just an opportunity to build something in one's own image. Yeah, I I guess I'm thinking about artists who sacrifice for politics, and I always think about Amiri Baraka. Um, Mm. He has this great quote, which I'm not going to quote in length, but he Mm. says something that really impresses upon me, which is that artists who decided to engage with politics made a choice to do that because they wanted to. It was always a choice. And for me, I never think about a political artist who chooses to use their art instrumentally even as sacrificing something. I see that as a positive gesture, just Mm. like artists who chose to work in abstraction or any kind of art. I think that that's all positive. It's all all a choice. Because it's their choice. Because it's their choice. And that's what they, they want to do with their work. 
The Brooklyn Museum was recently criticized for the hiring of a white curator uh, for the African collections. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. But when I think mm-hmm. of like um, museums in the city who are highlighting marginalized voices and mm-hmm. marginalized artists, I go to the Brooklyn Museum yes. for that. Thank you. So <laughs> I mean, just personally. So talk, can we talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit? Yes, I I have like you um, followed the exhibition excellence um, yes. of this museum, and you know we were the place to have witness, which also mm-hmm. focused on this period. Yep. We collected a large group of Black Arts Movement um, works in 2012, um, Mm -hmm. many of which make its way into this exhibition. We wanted a revolution last year. Um, Yes. Um, Radical Latin American women um, just this past winter. So, yeah, that is a part of our mission. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the curatorial team, along with leadership, recognizes that these artists are important, um, mm-hmm. not only historically and not only because they are marginalized people, but because they're making some of the best art of yes. our time and yes. have always been. Right. Um, so it's almost kind of just an acceptance of what is, I think, a very plain fact. It's almost easier to just accept mm-hmm. it than to fight against it. Right. We were ahead of the curve, I will say that. And I think so, too. No, <laughs> I think so, too. Other institutions are catching too. up. Yes. Yes. I'm glad. I'm glad that that's the case. (laughs) What are you hoping patrons walk away feeling or thinking Mm -hmm. after they leave this exhibit? Yeah, that's a question that I answer every I answer differently every time. Um, I think that I hope visitors leave knowing that black artists are innovators. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a major takeaway I hope a visitor has. Um, I hope they feel inspired Mm -hmm. by the responses that these artists engaged in, um, created in this period. And I hope that they also see Black culture itself as particularly fertile ground for um, innovation and art making. I really do think that collectively seeing such just excellent work altogether reinforces that black artists have always, always, always been at the front of the avant-garde. Good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to come see it, to be perfectly honest. Yes, happy to have you. I'm going to bring friends. Please do. I will. And family and everyone. I will. I will. Thank (laughs) you. Yes, thanks. some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. On Tuesday, tiny statues of Trump with a sign inviting dogs to pee on them appeared in Park Slope. Phil Gable, the advertising executive behind the statues, says he sprayed the small bus with a dog potty training agent to encourage canines to spray the statues, rather than the flower beds around the neighborhood. Gable said the folks in the neighborhood were tinkled, I mean tickled, by the works of art. Brooklyn is set to be home to a brand new axe-throwing bar because it seems drinking while hurling sharp objects is Natural Selection's newest test for the humans of Greenpoint. Gowanus has been passing this test with the bar Kick Axe, (laughs) boasting nearly a year of operation with no decapitation. So this makes Bury the Hatchet a cool-looking bar with a shitty name. 
the borough's second medieval times tavern. And it's set to open on October 26th at 67 West Street, offering two-hour sessions for a cool $49. <laughs> Former New York Congressman Anthony Weiner, who was sentenced to 21 months in prison after admitting to sexting with a minor, will be released from federal detention early for good behavior. Federal prison doesn't allow parole, but prisoners can get up to 54 days per year off their sentences for good behavior. Weiner is set to be released three months early on May 14, 2019. A new report shows that in flagrant disregard of the Americans with Disabilities Act, only 335 out of the city's 1,818 public schools are fully equipped for students with disabilities. And District 16 of Bed-Stuy has no accessible schools at all. Mayor de Blasio added $150 million in capital funding to address the issue in the city's June budget. But advocates say that the city needs a minimum of $750 million more to make at least one-third of the schools accessible by 2025. The Brooklyn Public Library is looking for your help in naming a six-foot-tall copper cast statue of an eagle, previously the original mascot of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Our associate producer, Isabel, would like you to know that she's leading a team effort to submit the best name for a literary national symbol. So far, we have Tom Sorer and James Baldwin. Of course, if it was a different bird, the obvious choice would be Atticus Finch. For more on these and other stories, check out brooklyner.com at B-K-L-Y-N-E-R.com. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.